Hopefully I can get this mic working fine. Uh, apologies to you. Once again, I am in the same under-the-weather pattern I was when I was here the first day or first second day. Uh, it just seems to be chasing me this, uh, this winter. So I apologize for any excessive noise uh, or the lack thereof that I might make at any given time as we cover this material. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's an interesting thing that, that Michael would start by saying the... Uh, the bit about let's listen to these ancient words and you know derive a lesson from them because you know we could say that that's fairly true about any text that you read in the bible but some texts because they're pitched in a certain way you can kind of ignore it the book of genesis for example yeah it's ancient words written to an ancient group of people that they are not us and so to a certain extent we're not the intended audience but on the other hand, because it's full of stories and descriptions of characters that we can identify with, it's possible to kind of absorb the lessons pretty, pretty straightforward. And that's a little different with the letters, because unlike you know, books like Genesis or even the Gospel of, of Matthew or John, or any of the Gospels, which are intentionally and self-consciously literary and driven by plot and character, the letters are very intimate and direct to a very different people group. And when we come to the letters of the New Testament, it becomes easier to acknowledge that we're eavesdropping on a conversation of which we are not a part, which, of course, adds to the the challenges. Um, We had talked last time about this additional material that was likely associated with the letters, um, the fact that when Paul or another uh, apostle or whoever wrote these letters, when they would send a letter, they would send it in the hands of a, a, a friend, a trusted advisor, who would have details above and beyond the content of the letter that would help structure the delivery of the letter. Raising your voice, emphasizing certain phrases, when to make a dramatic pause, where to stand, who to address. One of the things that we also struggle with is even how these letters will sometimes use the words of other people in quotation. Um, A great example of of this perplexity, if you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians chapter 14. I don't believe we talked about this, so... Forgive me if, if we did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we get Paul talking about a prioritization of spiritual gifts. And in the beginning of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, he says, Pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people, but to God. For nobody understands them, since they are speaking mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, those who prophesy speak to other people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So we have here Paul essentially making a a differentiation amongst these manifestations of of miraculous power. It's better to prophesy than to speak tongues, inasmuch as who you affect is, is broader. And he spends the rest of the chapter talking about different kinds of ways of demonstrating God's power in the congregation. And he ultimately seems again and again come down on the idea that one ought to emphasize prophecy and slightly de-emphasize speaking in tongues. And if tongues has a place, which he he accedes that it does, that it ought to be in order, as prophecy as well should be in order. Now, we get toward the end of the chapter, and he does something that's kind of strange. After again saying, you know, if you, pray in, if you pray in tongues, you speak to God, you can't speak to other people because nobody knows what you're talking about. He talks about people who will interpret this tongue, whatever the tongue is, the foreign language or some supernatural language, he, he never makes clear. Um, verse 13, he says, one who speaks in a tongue should also pray for the power to interpret. That's to say, you know, tongues is like an incomplete thing. So after all this time talking about how tongues is, uh, it, it presents a certain challenge because it requires a little bit more and prophecy is more direct. If you look in, let's see where it is here. 
verse 20. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, be infants in evil, but in thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, yet even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord, quoting a passage in uh, the Old Testament. Tongues then, this is where it gets kind of interesting, verse 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider who enters in is reproved by all, is called to account by all. After the secrets of the unbeliever's heart are disclosed, that person will bow down before God and worship him, declaring God is really among you. Now, you may not have caught this, but there's a problem there. Starting in verse 22, he says, he seems to be saying, tongues is a spiritual gift that works most powerfully for non-believers. And then in verse 22, he says, if non-believers come in, they'll think you're crazy because you speak in tongues. What is he doing? What is he saying? <laughs> he, he's got, there's a contradiction here. It's a problem. Say again. Yes, he clearly is. So then how does he say in verse 22, speaking in tongues is a gift that reaches non-believers while prophecy is for believers? He says exactly the opposite in the next two verses. So what's going on? This is part of the challenge of reading the letters. In other places, Paul is known to quote his opponent's views. But when he quotes them, he doesn't always tell us he's going to quote them. So sometimes we will find in the letters of Paul these disjunctions that will throw us for a loop. And the best possible solution to them is to say, I think he might be quoting a view that he's about to refute. But he doesn't bother to tell us. Because why would he? He's not writing for people who don't know this view. He's writing to the people who have this view. As a matter of fact, my, my suspicion is that when he says in 1 Corinthians 14... Starting when in verse 20, brothers and sisters, don't be children in your thinking. That is how he introduces that what he's going to say next is their infantile thought. And then he moves on and he says, in the law it is written. I believe this is the beginning of where he would start quoting them. Their argument is, in the law, in the Old Testament, it says, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I speak to this people, but they won't listen, which means... This people, the church, isn't reachable by foreign tongues. It must be the non-believers. And then all that he says, tongues are for, for not, not for believers, but for unbelievers. I think all of this is him quoting his opponents. And then he turns around and he says, but therefore, if the whole church comes together, if you actually do that, people are going to think you're crazy. That's his genuine opinion. The reason there seems to be a contradiction or a conflict here is that we do actually have two different attitudes, two different mentalities that are being slapped together in the text. But for, for, for practical reasons, Paul doesn't need to tell the people what they think. They already know. So he, th- he chucks their, their comments back in their, in, their, in their face, and he says, this is what you guys are saying, but let me tell you something else. Yeah. The extra textual stuff that we lack might have been present in the delivery here. Yeah, it's entirely possible. He might even turn to the leader of the community who's saying this and saying, and then he repeats what he says. Maybe even, maybe even drawing a wink and a nod from the guy. Tongues are for, believer, for non-believers, not for believers, right? Prophecy is for believers, tongues is for non-believers, right? Yeah, yeah. You're wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. If, if that's true, then why is it so often... That when we have instances of this, people think we're mad. He says, that should teach you that this really is a sign for believers. However, what you say is a sign for believers and not for non-believers, prophecy, actually is the other way around. 
It penetrates into the depths of a person's soul and it exposes them to God in a profound way that they have never seen before. And that they'll say, this is from God, right? So this is just an instance of of what it means to sometimes read these letters, um, the challenge of reading these letters. Sometimes we, we have a tendency of reading them all vanilla, all flat, uh, we, we assume that every single word that's written on the page is from the same voice, in the same, uh, from the same person. And in reality, if we read it that way, we actually end up with problems. So there's a challenge that's endemic to this. Now, part of the way we get around this is by recognizing that letters have patterns that we can work from. Because letters are a genre. So in the letter genre in the ancient world, we typically have this structure... Uh, the letter beginning with some sort of salutation or greeting, followed by offering of thanks, the body of the letter with whatever it includes, details of the uh, reason for the address, and then some sort of formal closing. And in this sense, uh, by the way, it's important to note that for the better part of modern scholarship on the New Testament, the history of modern scholarship, the main place that people turn to compare what the, what the letters of Paul, what the letters of James or Peter, what they look like in, in, in how they for, function structurally, the, the main comparison is, uh, is often made to the way that Greeks and Romans wrote their letters. And because of that, there were times when people would say, well, this is weird, this is unexpected, especially when it comes to uh, these, these lengths, okay? Whenever uh, uh, most ancient people would write a letter, they would probably write no more than 90 words, Okay? Uh, philosophers would write almost 300 words, but look what Paul averages out at. That's very wordy, 1,300, right? And Romans is really over the top, three, so 7,000 words. Now, Philemon, which is the shortest letter in the New Testament, it, and well, actually, I don't know if Jude may be com- competing with it, I'm not sure, but Philemon is certainly the shortest of Paul's letter, would be, you know, comparable to the ancient letters here, 90 words, right? And yet Paul manages to make this personal communication in 359 words. Which means that if, if the comparison is apt, that Paul's doing something really bizarre, okay? In addition to that, the way he does greetings and salutations is typically seen as, as strange and odd. It doesn't fit the paradigm. And then Someone came along, I believe, at the end of the 90s, maybe in early 2000s, and they said, hey, wait a second. You know, it just occurred to us Paul's Jewish. Why, that's a surprise, I don't know. And maybe we ought to pay attention to how early Jews wrote letters and what their letters looked like. And there's only there's been a small handful of studies who have actually tried to do this, but they've demonstrated that many of the things in Paul's letters and the letters of the New Testament that people picked out as odd or strange are not at all odd or strange for a first century Jew. That their way of introducing and closing and the kinds of thanksgivings they give are actually very normative. Um, which, by the way, just underlines a, a reality that we deal with in New Testament studies, which is that for, uh, for generations, scholars dealing with New Testament have been trained in Greek and Roman thought and attitudes and language and literature, and many of them were never introduced to Jewish thought at all. And it was felt that that was okay because Christianity has nothing to do with Judaism. Uh, whoops. It's really only been in the last 80 years that people have began to take this seriously, the last 50 years where there's been real headway, and the last 30 years where serious scholars are taking notice of this. And so it is even, even with like basic things like, how's a letter written? Most of the people still today will say, well, let's put you know, Paul next, next to uh, Pliny's letters, right? Well, yeah, okay, fine, but how about putting his letters next to the letters of uh, some, of the, some of the Jewish rabbis as they're recorded in the Talmud? Like, that's a fruitful basis of comparison. Uh, at any rate, what's interesting is that if you take the ratio of words in the Greco-Roman context, 90 words for a, a common letter and then a more thoughtful letter being 295, you'll find out that if Paul's common letter is this, that by the almost the same ratio, most of his letters end up being appropriately long. The ratio is about the same. Uh, but one has to consider that he might be thinking and acting out in a, in a different, almost a different linguistic set or expectation. The point being that Paul's, I've often said Paul's letters are unusually long, but when you really think about it in, in the broader perspective, they should be. 
They should be longer than Greco-Roman letters. They're actually perfectly normative for, for Jewish letters. Except for Romans, which really is over the top. I mean, clearly, clearly this signals something, right? When Paul's letters deviate from the norm, then we should take notice of that. We should say something strange is going on. Okay? Anything added, anything subtracted is always worth noticing. Uh, in the structure, the salutation, greetings, thanksgiving, everything like that. For example, uh, we have at least one letter of Paul where he ditches part of this altogether. Right? We would normally expect to see you know, indication of who he's writing a letter to, and then he expresses thanks. And, and then open up with me to Galatians chapter 1. <clears throat> it's a fairly normative thing in Paul's letters. We expect him to say, grace and peace to you. I thank my God every time I think of you, things like that. Then Galatians 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you're quickly deserting the one who called you. He doesn't offer any thanks for them, <laughs> right? And, and, and this suggests something, right? And actually, if you read the full letter, you get the impression he's pretty peeved. This is a, it's a fairly hostile and direct letter, and, and, that, and that itself teaches us something, right? That not every letter is sent to the same group of people, and it's not necessarily sent in the same way, spirit, or mode. And that the, ref, the structure of the letter might actually reflect that, might give us a sense of what's going on. One of the considerations, too, which may explain the difference in lengths, is when we, when we talk about Paul writing letters to individuals or particular churches, we have to ask the question, was it formal or was it informal? And, and the, the uh, study that was done by uh, Lutz, Lutz During, here, written down here, Ancient Jewish Letters in the Beginnings of Christian Epistolography, there's a a link to a book review of, of this. It's very interesting. Uh, he, he essentially points out how uh, During has indicated that Paul's letters very clearly presuppose that, that these letters are being read publicly in a very formal way, uh, which is interesting because we often will ask, you know, I've had, I've had when, when I taught the, the course on Paul and his letters last semester, I had a student, just, he was a very brash and brazen student all, all semester long, very assertive of what he knew, which wasn't always accurate. Um, good kid, good kid, but, you know, just young and dumb in that way. Young and dumb, and you know, we know what I'm talking about. I've been there. I'm still there in some ways. Give me enough time and I'll reveal it. So he, you know, he says, you know, well, I think maybe even the first or second day of course, he says, well, you know, because Paul's letters were written to only individuals and very particular people, they absolutely can't be applied today. And I was like, well, he says, as we all know, they're, they're so particular that you can't do anything with them. Oh, really? <laughs> do you think Paul would think that? Well, the fact is, is that that is one of the bracing questions that we ask of ourselves is when Paul and others wrote letters, did they envision that one day they would be poured over as Holy Scripture? I mean, it's, it's hard a question to ask, right? Do any of our biblical authors know? Well, we get some indication in certain places. For example, the Gospel of Luke. Does the, does the author of the Gospel of Luke imagine that he's writing what is going to become a holy text? Why is it that in the first three chapters, he intentionally mimics the style of the Septuagint? Holy text for him. Why is it that the book of John, for example, the Gospel of John is written the way it is, that so, it seems to be so clearly oriented toward persuading people of belief, right? I mean, does he not think this is going to be continuously read? Does he think it's going to be read by one person and then they're going to step away and go, that was good. I'm gonna, now, now it's time to read my next novel. Same thing with Paul's letters. Does he think that it's going to only be read once publicly until the problem is addressed and then he's going to move on? Maybe. But why does he demand such a formal audience? And why does he speak so, so generally at some points and so universally um, 
yeah, I, I mean, we, we don't know the answer. But it wouldn't surprise me at, a, at, at all if someone like Paul, who's writing this majestic letter like Romans, fully expects that this will be incorporated into the body of the church's teachings and consistently consulted. Uh, and one ought to remember, by the way, that Paul is a Jew, and when Jewish rabbis were brought in on controversies, they would write responsa, they would write letters that they would expect would become a part of the community's tradition. That you wouldn't just go, oh, that's an interesting opinion, and throw it away. You would actually take it seriously and say, this may be God using this rabbi to explain and expand some aspect of law that we hadn't considered before. We have collections like that. I mean, the Talmud itself is a collection like that of people debating and arguing and coming up with new interpretations of the law, and then it gets codified. The point being that when we take, when we take Paul uh, at face value um, and we really pay attention to way, the way he talks, I don't think we can be strident and we can be certain that he didn't intend for his letters to communicate to more than one audience. On the other hand, following what Eugene Boring says here, uh, I love this quote, like, like many others, I'd been accustomed to reading Paul's and other New Testament letters as theological treatises, uh, essays on Christian doctrine cast more or less incidentally in the form of letters addressed to particular churches. We have this opposite problem, which is, okay, we can read Paul as scripture, we can read Paul as theology, but let's remember that's not how it started, and that's not the end of the game. And we ought to ask the question, what does it mean to take Romans or Galatians or 1 Corinthians seriously as a letter as it was originally delivered? And how might this affect our reading of it? This is what brings me into talking about ancient rhetoric. Rhetoric can be deployed in formal and spoken contexts, um, in, you know, in, in letters, in literature, in writing, Anytime there's an opportunity or a need to persuade someone short of just demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt the evidence of a situation, rhetoric is going to be employed. And rhetoric was a very important aspect of the Greco-Roman world. It's not always very clear how rhetoric functioned in the rabbinical world, although there are traces of it. And it served a multiplicity of purposes, exhortation and advice, mediation between uh, parties, and it could also serve the purpose of uh, either defending a person's character or defaming a person's character, accusation and apologetic. In fact, in the classical canons of rhetoric, we, we typically find three, three normative forms. I've added a fourth because I, I feel like it's not, it's not comfortable along the other sides of the other. Uh, and this, by the way, is an appeal to Aristotle's idea of rhetoric. We've got judicial rhetoric, deliberative rhetoric and epideictic rhetoric, to which I've added paranesis. Judicial is the rhetoric that one would use when going into a courtroom. You appeal to witness statements and evidence and the logical process of law. Deliberative rhetoric is the rhetoric of peers in a city council meeting, where there may be the use of some evidence, but the emphasis will be more on you know, ideals and who we ought to be and what we think is important, what, what is worthy of life. Epideictic rhetoric is the rhetoric of the schoolhouse and the of, and parent-to-child relationships where an individual engages in either praise or blame of a person and his models, his or her models, in order to bring about an intended end. And it has less to do with reason and thinking clearly and more to um, what is important and what's valuable and who do, you, who do you wish to be? And who are you and who, who should you not be? Okay, Paranesis is more straightforward directions about how you, how you should be. I, you know, it, you know, you've already given me confidence and trust. Let me teach you how you ought to live. Okay? Judicial, deliberative, epideictic, and paranesis. In each of these categories, we actually do find operative in Paul's letters. Sometimes Paul points to Scripture and argues very cogently and logically, okay? And that would be either judicial type or deliberative type. Other times, he's very clearly shaming and blaming. <laughs> how, could you de- how could you do this? I've been like a father to you, and you've turned your back on me, right? Sometimes he's fatherly and paternal and loving, and other times he's, he's hard, well, ancient rhetoric, right? So when we try to understand what is in the background here, and, and when we talked about you know, how 
part of the technology of letters is this unspoken stuff. This is part of that. There's an unspoken script about how you go about persuading people, and that can affect our reading of Scripture. An example, James. Very problematic passage, by the way. Notice in the red, or in the yellow here, what I've done is I've identified between two different versions, the New American Standard Version, translation, and the English Standard Version, how between two translations, the committees couldn't decide where James's opponent's quote starts and ends. James 2.17, so also by, uh, it's also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, quote, you have faith and I have work, and works, end quote, in the ESV. Show me your faith apart from your works. This is the beginning of then perceived beginning of James's statement. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from the works is useless? Now, the NAS actually says that the, the, the opponent's quote actually goes all the way through to, I will show you my faith by my works, and that James starts with, you believe that God is one. Now, anybody that's familiar with James will know that the essential position James seems to be arguing for is that you can't just be someone who consents intellectually to believing and doesn't show it by actions, that actions matter. Okay? And, and, and there may be lots of reasons why James is saying this, and, and there's all sorts of conversations that have happened about how we fit James's perspective of faith and works alongside of Paul's perspective of faith uh, faith apart from works. Okay? And this, of course, not insignificant in the history of Protestantism. Right? What does it mean that there's such controversy over exactly what his opponents say? Well, take this for granted. <coughs> what is James's position? Matter of fact, you tell me, based on what I just said, what is James's official position on the integration between faith and works? <coughs> How would you say it? Faith and works both together. Integration is essential. Sue, what, what, what were you going to say? Yeah. You need to have your works in place. If you don't have, would you agree with this, that he essentially believes if you don't have works, then you can't prove you have faith? Would you say that's about, that's about right? Now, I want you to pay close attention to what, what is being said here. <clears throat> but someone will say, and by the way, this someone may be a fictional opponent. In ancient rhetoric, you often invent a fictional character that you can sort of bounce an idea across. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. <clears throat> he has depicted his opponent saying, so it's almost like if, if Michael is James, and James is saying, faith without works is dead, right? Which means faith alone is not enough. You have to have works. And now I'm the opponent, and what's my, what's my word? My word is, you have faith, I have works. Well, that's kind of the flip way that most people read this. Most people will flip this in their mind, and they believe that James's opponent is saying, I have faith and you have works, and that's cool. It's not at all what he's saying. And that's weird. Because why is James quoting somebody to refute who actually seems to have more in common with him? Which is strange, right? And then, then James's, theoretically, James's follow-up Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Seems to be refuting a statement that doesn't exist. The guy never claimed that he could have faith apart from works. He actually, the guy he's, he's quoting here claims that he has, he has works, and James has faith. So what is he trying to do? What is going on? This is, by the way, why the NAS expands the quote and says, no, this can't make sense. We, this has got to be the words of the opponent. But then look at 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. But again, this is seen as a criticism as believing only and not doing works. But that is not what this someone believes. So where does the quote begin and where does it end? Well, here's the thing. What if I told you that in ancient Greco-Roman rhetoric, when you create a situation where you have an imagined opponent whom you quote, in order to provide a foil for your opinion, that it was stylistically normative to mark the boundary between their speech and your speech by insulting them. Now where does the quote end? <clears throat> the, 
This is not James's opinion. This is the opinion he refutes. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And he's saying, look, you idiot. (laughs) Do I really need to tell you that faith apart from works is useless? He's actually addressing the other crowd. He's got one group that says, you can believe, you don't have to have works. He says, no, no, you know that's not right. But then, the, and then this other person comes in and, and he's, he's theoretically saying, but what if someone says, that's right, James, you tell him, works is all that matters. He goes to him, he says, no, listen, do I need to talk you through how they have to both be present? That's just an example of why understanding rhetoric can be helpful. It actually gets us to reread who's speaking and what, what the parts are. Um, by the way, I don't think it's accidental and unimportant that the letter of James is specifically addressed to the 12 tribes of the diaspora. Okay? We, we, we often wonder, does he mean this metaphorically, like all of God's people, or does he mean it very concretely that his address is to Christians who are Jewish, Jewish followers of Jesus? If so... And I, I assume that you'll be unpacking this in the weeks that follow when, we, when you get a chance to dig into the book of Acts and early Christian history. You know, what is the significance of the fact that James, which so heavily emphasizes the need to both believe and do, could potentially be written to a group of people that are wrestling with the question of whether, as Jesus followers, they ought to continue to obey Torah, which is a tremendously important debate in early Christianity. What if James's words about needing to accompany your faith by direct actions is particularly advice that he's giving to Jewish believers, essentially teaching them don't abandon the ways of Torah when you accompany it with belief in Jesus? Which is to say, this may be less relevant to non-Jews. Who's the intended audience? Does it matter how we read it? Thoughts? Any questions about that? <clears throat> Again, I, I, you know, I, I have friends that, students and friends that will come to me and they say, you know what I always enjoy about you, Carl, is I come to you with one question and then I leave with ten. So I recognize that that may happen and, and that's okay, that's intentional. Yeah, Sue. Right, right. being and then doing. There's a dynamic relationship between the two, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Right. That's, that's right. Well, because we don't, we don't have the keen insight to see who people are. We mostly see what they do, right? Yeah, we do and we judge. And, you know, you know of course, the reality is, is that Judging in that context doesn't really accomplish much because it just alienates, right? As opposed to like if I actually get to know you and form a relationship with you and I get a glimpse of how your actions are reflections of who you are, then we can have a more intimate conversation about that, right? I'm worried about you because I see this in your life and I fear that it may be a reflection of something unresolved in, your, in, your, in yourself, right? Uh, often, oftentimes, I think as, as c- Christian communities, we reserve judgment against ourselves, uh, and then we apply it very liberally to other people, right? <laughs> and and that when we when we seek to kind of critique, we often don't take the first initial step, which is just to make sure that we actually know what we're talking about. Do we do we know the people that we're in, involved with? And yeah, that's that's definitely a part of it. I mean, like like I said, though, there's there's a dynamic relationship here between doing and being, where. You know, C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity that the right way to become or the best way to become what you want to be is by, by being that or acting that way. And eventually it works its way into your heart. And I think there's a truth to that. You know, sometimes we have to embody a practice before it can become true of us. Um, yeah, just a thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an excellent question. How did these letter writers become acquainted with the needs of the, the people on the ground? 
Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Spies, yes. Well, they did, the ancient world did have spies. There, there were spies. Uh, espionage in the ancient world is a fascinating topic. So, they, some of them did. Some of them did. And I'm actually looking here on the fly for a, a reference to that. I, I believe in Philippians, there's a, there's a comment... Let's see, that's in Philippians, it's, you know, Epaphroditus has come to Paul, but that doesn't make very clear whether he's uh, come with a message. Is it Ephesians that talks about uh, somebody reporting back? There, There are little references peppered throughout his letters where Paul will indicate, um, you know, that people go back and forth. And that some people come to him with reports of what's going on. You know, uh, news has reached me via so and so who came from you. I, I'm not finding the reference now, um, but I can look into it and, and bring back references next time. Let me make note of that, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sintike, yeah. Right, so he knows very specific knowledge about their context, right? He's getting it from somewhere. By the way, by the way, my, who's going to help out? Syzygis, Syzygis, yeah. Syzygis, so we, we actually, that word, we're not entirely sure if it should be understood as a name or a title. Syzygis means my co-laborer or my, my yoke fellow, my yoke fellow. And, I, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of time to go into this. This is more of a Paul thing than a letter thing. But there was actually, there, was, there, there are trace traditions in the church that suggest that this isn't a name, but that Paul is identifying a woman in this congregation that is his wife. That is his wife. Because that, that is a normal Greek word for your spouse. And that when you, there's, there are church traditions about the apostles. Many of the apostles had wives, but that during the time of their mission, and some, sometimes they would take the wives along. The wives would carry the gospel message into the inner sancta of women's quarters while the men would minister in the streets. But that because they didn't want to arouse jealousy around anybody, they restricted themselves to being celibate during this time. And uh, there, there are questions about Paul, whether or not he was married, which everybody sort of says, well, of course he wasn't. He says so himself. One of my students actually pointed this out. She says, well, what does it say actually? You know, because Paul at one point says, um, as, to the mari- as to the unmarried and the widows, I wish they would remain unmarried as I am. Well, the funny thing is, is it doesn't actually say that. It just says that I wish they would remain as I. Okay? But he, if he were married and he's living celibate, he could say the same thing. If he were married and not being unmarried, that is to say, just remain just as I do, right? Just as I am or just as I do that I don't change my status. It's ambiguous. But there, there, was at least a, there, there is at least a representative tradition in the Christian church that says that passage in particular is a reference to Paul's wife. Interesting stuff. Anyway, we'll have to move on. So, <clears throat> rhetoric. The, qu- the question then becomes, <clears throat> uh, what is rhetoric and how does it work? The one side, rhetoric is always going to be informed by that on-the-ground on the knowledge. However they get this knowledge, if it's letters that are written, people that come to Paul uh, with, with ideas, you know, and we do see that, we do see that. Even in the book of Acts, we get a sense that people are moving from place to place. Whatever is going on in that local community is going to color the kind of rhetoric that's deployed and what is discussed, right? And so to that end, if we want to know about, if we want to have access to this, this hidden world behind the letters, then one of the ways we can do that is to gain more knowledge about the communities and the, com- the communities and the places where they were, right? So learning about Rome and Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, um, all of those places before or as we read through the letters that pertain to each of those groups, okay? Um, On some level, though, because we we do have access to Greco-Roman sources, but sometimes they're pretty thin, and sometimes, you know, if we read, you know, some, some, you know, we read plenty on the nature of, you know, the community in Asia Minor, Great, that helps us know a bit about Major Minor, but oftentimes our Greek and Roman sources 
either don't know or just don't care about the inner workings of the Christian congregations. So what we know about exactly how their history is developing is, is, is hard. To, it's hard to grapple with. What we know is thin. So what we often do is we practice reverse engineering, or we attempt to. We actually will go to Paul's letters and we'll say, okay, what, what kinds of things does he talk about? What kinds of words does he use? What seems to irritate Paul? What seems to be fine with Paul? What does he discourage? What does he encourage? How does this fit alongside other letters that we know about him? What is the book of Acts? What might the book of Acts say? Okay? And from those, we kind of create a sort of sketch of what this community is and what they struggle with. The problem we have with this is that we can become very dangerous, dangerously close to circular reasoning. That is to say, we want to understand what Paul is saying to these churches, so we read these documents to these churches, we imagine what church it was, and then we know what he's saying to these churches. Well, of course you do, right? I mean, that's, how, do you, how do you support it? So we try our best to anchor what the, what the descriptions are uh, to worlds outside of the text. And, there, and there's some, some curious things that happen. You know, for example, when we read Ephesians, we, become sensitized, we need to become sensitized to the local history of Ephesus, which is a place where magic is in its prime. There's lots of magical practice. In matter of fact, the best magic on, on the market in the Greco-Roman world was Ephesia Magica, Ephesian magic. And this is a place where we know a lot of interest in the mystical arts, magic, the arcane was, was promulgated. And so when we read the, the letter uh, to the Ephesians, um, it kind of might color in some things for us why the author of Ephesians talks so much about angels and supernatural beings and powers and how Jesus fits into that framework. So knowing something about the local cultures and maybe what the church is dealing with, it, it helps us to unpack exactly how Paul sort of says, expresses, and the things that he juxtaposes. But the, the problem is, is we don't always know that we've got it right, and because of that, we have to be very careful not to assert dogmatically, well, this we know for absolute certain. We don't, actually. We don't. Um, when it comes to rhetoric as an argumentative style, some interesting things. Um, as we said before, as I said before, you know, the, the kind of rhetoric you engage in often depends on not only your location and their background, you know, who, who's writing to whom, but what kind of goals you set. And what kind of relationship you're trying to create with these people? What kind of relationship you have with these people? Um, so I've quoted here from Penner and Lopez, rhetorical approaches introducing the art of persuasion in Paul. Um, what argumentative aim, what persuasive end did Paul have in mind? That's actually a really fundamentally important question to ask whenever you read these letters, any letters by Paul or anybody else. What were they getting at? What was their point? What's the end goal? What are they trying to accomplish? And you know, the thing is, is that this is exactly what kinds of get, kind of gets lost if we, we think about what Eugene Boring said in the, a couple slides ago. When we tend to read the letters as if they're not really letters, we tend to read them as dogmas, as scriptures, and we forget that these were actually rhetorically designed pieces of persuasion. And what I think is so fundamentally interesting about this is that the way we interact with these texts is so different from the way that the author meant for them to be seen, Right? You know, if I, want you to, if I want you to believe a certain thing that Paul says, I don't argue with you and I don't try to give you the best evidence. I just say, well, Paul said it, you have to believe it. What's ironic is that when Paul said it, he was trying to persuade them. He was trying to prove to them, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that what he said was true. And I, and I think that reveals, I think, a kind of laziness on the part of modern Christians that, as I say here, you know, we take on faith, and not only do we take on faith, but we command that other people take on faith what the authors themselves had to argue to prove. And rather than interacting with people and saying, well, you have to believe the Bible because, you know, the Bible, why don't we say, okay, you know, the Bible says this, but let me talk you through why we think this. It's, it's easier for us to just be like, you know, just see the chapter and verse. But I think that's a kind of a lazy approach to this situation. And, and I think it's, it's, it's fundamentally important to realize that one of the people that's generating what we call scripture is engaged in persuasive moods of, modes of communication. That he sees that what he thinks and believes and what he thinks they ought to think and believe are not a priori assumptions you can make, and they're not givens that you can just hand to people. 
you have to talk them into it. That's an interesting observation, I think. That, and that, that says something about the nature of Christian communication, right? Um, one of the passages that I think most evocatively demonstrates Paul in this point is actually not by Paul at all, but by his erstwhile biographer, Luke, in Acts chapter 17, where Paul will go to a group of non-Jews and then he will not at all quote scripture to them because he knows it's pointless. Instead, he actually familiarizes himself with their literature, their poets, their philosophies. And actually, the, the funny thing, and I, I love teaching this to my students, uh, when Paul first goes to Athens in Acts chapter 17, he steps foot in the marketplace and he is disgusted because there are idols and altars everywhere for the local religious communities. And as a good monotheistic Jew, this appalls him. And it offends his sensibilities. And it says, it says he was shocked. He was shocked and overwhelmed by it. And then the very next thing he does in the book of Acts is he goes to the Jewish community. He kind of goes to his safe space. right? Like, ah, you know, I am done being around these people. I need to go and tuck in with some good church folk who get me. But he isn't allowed to escape this world and in fact, he's in the middle of preaching when some non-Jewish people hear him and say, we want to hear more from you. Which one almost gets the sense that he's kind of an unwilling partner to this. He's not super excited. Like he spends most of his time with the Jews trying to persuade them. And then these Gentiles keep horning in on the operation, but he goes with the flow. And so they take him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, okay, the Hill of Ares. And they say, all right, now talk. Now, what's fascinating about this, they say to him, this guy is promoting new philosophies and he's saying something about the gods. Let's hear him at Mars Hill. In the city of Athens, Mars Hill, or the Oropagus, was a site where public trials were held. And in fact, once upon a time, a guy named Socrates may have been standing on this exact same space being asked to give a defense of his life for introducing new philosophies and talking about the gods. So when Paul is called to the Areopagus, there's this sort of tongue-in-cheek moment where you go, are they going to kill him? <laughs> like, we think this is a wonderful evangelistic opportunity. I'm not so sure that that was exactly what was going on. They may have been putting him on trial. And in the midst of this, they say, tell us what you need to tell us about the gods. And he starts by saying, I, went, I walked through the marketplace. And, right? And what, what was his response? His response when he, he actually was there was disgust. This is what he communicates. I walked through the marketplace and I was struck at how religious you people are. You really are so devout. That's really a nice way of saying <laughs> you worship a lot of gods. You worship you worship so many gods. As a matter of fact, he says, I, I was walking through and I saw an altar to an unknown God. And I want to proclaim to you that actually that God is known and he can be known by you. Now, what he's referring to is the fact that uh, Greeks and Romans were a little bit paranoid about their relationship with the gods because Greek and Roman gods were capricious. And this is, by the way, why some people stepped away from Greco-Roman religion and tried to convert to Judaism, the God-fearers. They were capricious, and so you wanted to make sure you appeased them all. Make sure you sacrificed at every altar, you paid some offering to every god, and then what if you forgot someone? You buy the altar to the unknown god, which is to say, anybody else, this is the leftovers, so you take what you can, and I don't, I'm sorry if you're, you know, I've, I've forgotten your name, but, you know, I, I, I care about you too. So it's really, it, it's, a, it's an object of religious worship and veneration that comes from a deep fear that, You'll offend a deity. And what Paul wants to say is, actually, I know that deity. And actually, he's the God of all creation. And then he, 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 doesn't, he never refers to Jewish scripture. He never quotes the Bible at all. Instead, he goes, he goes, as a matter of fact, not only are you religious, not only are you sensing that there's something else out there that I've come to talk to you about, but even your own poets know it. Even your own poets know it. And they say things like this, and, and God is near to you. He's, he's nearer to you than your breath. And you, if you reach out and, and, and try to seek him, you might, just, you might just encounter him. What he's doing is he's playing up what they believe, what they think, what they're familiar with. Right? He downplays his perspective. And I feel like that is a narrative, that's a narrative cognate 
to what is actually going on in all of his letters, which is he takes what is a, a shared reality between him and his readers or his hearers, and he argues on the basis of that persuasively to get them to understand where he's coming from, right? Which is, that's different than the way we use scripture. Paul is complex when it comes to this. Um, if, he's arguing, if he's arguing persuasively, then we have to be careful about how we understand his words. For example, what does it mean in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5 and to 16, when he starts talking about whether or not women should be veiled? <clears throat> Let's look there, 1 Corinthians 11. Actually, verse 4. Any man who prophesies or prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or be shaved, she should wear a veil. By the way, I want you to pay attention here. Where is he getting his understanding that women should wear a veil from? He doesn't quote any Old Testament passage. He doesn't quote any scripture at all. What's he saying? Let's let's read on. You'll see it. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God, but woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to wear on her head a symbol of authority because of the angels. Nevertheless, the Lord, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through women. But all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. It is, pr- is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. What, how does, in what way does nature teach that men ought to have short hair and women ought to have long hair? Does, it begs the question, what do we mean by nature? What does Paul mean by nature? I mean, I can't think of a single thing in nature that indicates why women should have long hair and men should have short hair. What he means by nature is common culture the ethics and the morals and the codes and the ways of being and dressing and thinking and doing of the day. That's what he means by nature. Well, that's not as natural as we might assume, is it? So for Paul, nature isn't nature. Nature is what is commonly received, right? And he says this, right? Because because we culturally receive that women traditionally have long hair, men have short hair. Therefore, This affects my argument about veiling. By the way, notice what he's doing here all this time. He is trying to argue persuasively. He's saying in our culture it means this and that. So he's using all of these little frameworks to say, come on, you guys, I believe this. I want you to be on board with this. Now I'm going to cajole you and persuade you to being there. He does not speak with the voice of absolute authority here. He speaks trying to reason them into a position uh, that he has accepted. And then, then the best. Verse 16. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. This has been spun in a couple different ways by different interpreters and readers. I'm I'm persuaded that they've gotten it wrong. Many people will say, there's no other custom besides the veiling of hair in any of God's churches. Or, they might be, so actually, it says, we have no such custom. That the custom he's referring to is being argumentative. It's odd for Paul, the most argumentative early Christian that I can think of, to say being contentious is ruled out. Dude, you're doing it right now. (laughs) So when Paul says, if anyone is being contentious, we have no custom, what I think he's trying to say is, if you want to pick a fight about this, there is no official standard of whether or not women should have hair coverings or not in all the churches of God. It's just not... An absolute statement. It's my persuasion. It's what I would like all of you to do, but it is not from God. Why do I say this? Because in other places, whoops, I don't know how I bumped forward on that. In other places, Paul will actually specifically indicate that the words he's speaking don't come from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
in which he talks about marriage and, and non-marriage. Verse 10, chapter 7. To the married I give this command, but it's not me, it's from the Lord. A wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. And yeah, that's pretty much straight out of Jesus' teachings. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus saying something about no divorce and, and, and the like. But then verse 12. To the rest of you I say, I and not the Lord. To the rest of you I say, not the Lord, but I. If any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and consents to live with her... She should not divorce him, right? So here, what does it mean to have in our scripture the words of a man who says, this is not from God? That's odd. How seriously do we take him? We say, oh, Paul, you're full of it. This is from God. In which case, we're saying Paul lied, which is a bigger problem. Or we say, okay, no, we take him seriously. That There are times when Paul speaks and it sounds authoritative, but if you push him on it, he would say, okay, okay. That's not, that, that's not 100% from the Lord. It's, it's what I think is true. But he does caveat this, by the way. He says at the very end of chapter 7, a wife is bound, verse 39, if a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes only in the Lord. So she ought to marry someone who's a fellow believer. Verse 40, but in my judgment, my judgment, she's more blessed if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the spirit of God. What does he mean by that? Like, okay, folks, this is coming from me. It's not from the Lord. But just as a heads up, I do believe I'm filled with God's spirit. So I might actually be speaking from the Lord and not know it. So you want to be careful about what you do with my words. <laughs> but what is that? That's rhetoric. That's rhetoric, right? Paul's saying, now, you might think it's okay to disagree with me, and that's fine, but just so you know, the Holy Spirit does speak through me occasionally. <laughs> well done, Paul, well done. But you see what's going on here? This, is, this scripture, this text, this material is so much more dynamic than we generally tend to think. We tend to approach it, again, from that standard, well, we all have to accept it, we all have to agree to it, and what we end up doing is we actually end up doing, uh, doing disservice to it because what Paul even tells us is that sometimes he gives judgments. He passes judgments on the basis of culture that's not necessarily universal. He sometimes gives us information that comes from his best practices but isn't authoritative and that should not necessarily be true of all churches. And obviously we've understood this, right? I'm looking around and I don't see any women with head coverings on, right? <laughs> so we must, we must internally understand this. No heads shaved either. So we, we've apparently, we've gotten the message, or we understood it. We just didn't know why, maybe. But of course, the question then becomes, you know, when we read his messages, or any other messages in the letter, we're asking not only what conditions were they written under, what it, what, how, how does it affect the letter itself, but are they written to affect global change throughout all time and place? Or are these letters written to address very specific and local issues and do they need to be appropriately interpreted only within those, those realms? That is to say, how do we apply messages that were originally meant for another audience? We'll come back to talking about this next time. We're out of time, but this is where we get into talking about women in ordination. Right? Some churches go, women can't be ordained. Paul makes it very clear. Other people say, I'm not sure Paul's as clear as, as we think. All right, we'll talk about that next time. Any questions before we go? No? <laughs> well, that's right. That's that good. Yeah, yeah. That's that's great. By the way, what's your name? I'm not going to report you or anything. <laughs> no. Uh, so I want to st let me start next time by by resolving that question a bit because I think that's an excellent question. Um, why does Paul say these things if they're if if they're not from God? And and. There, this, is, this goes to the point of what is his aim in these letters. We, we, if, we think, if we think that the only thing that Paul is attempting to do is to communicate exactly what God wants, I think we're thinning out what is actually a much more rich idea, 
which is Paul, Paul and the other letter writers are engaged in a much larger enterprise that takes multiple facets into consideration. So we'll talk about that as the start next time. Yeah. No, 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 no Oropagus for you. <laughs> and, but I appreciate it. That's a really great and deep question. Um, all right, thank you. I guess that's all the time we have today. <laughs>